Welcome, it's part two of my interview with Marcia Wheeler, and I'm about to badger her about the monster of Peladon. Well, and just as floor managers are different mm. by temperament, mm. directors too. So yes. with with um, that, you've got the sort of staid and old-fashioned mm. Alan Bromley, and then your next Doctor, which wasn't long after the Monster of Peladon, has um, uh, an, an Australian that everybody remembers um, for his colourful character of Lenny Main. Mm. And that was a script extensively rewritten by Lenny, not necessarily to its advantage, because it had a confused plot to start with, and I think by the time we finished with it, it was possibly even more confused, because it had different lots of baddies. One lot of baddies looked rather like um, giant, sort of sticky... Um, what were those sweets? Oh, humbugs. Humbugs. Yeah. They look like giant furry humbugs. Yeah, they, yeah, they were the miners of Peladon. That's it, and they, that's they it. sort of had badger sort that's of haircuts. I remember yes. casting Ralph Watson as Indeed. one of them. Yes. Yeah. Ralph, Ralph gives good scenery chewing. He, he, he does, does give good scenery <laughs> chewing. <laughs> like Nice Man, I did the DVD yes, culture. Because Lenny, Lenny didn't go home in the middle of the casting, but he was open to suggestions. So both Ralph and Don G were cast at my suggestion. Um... And that, that, in a way, was, was much more fun. Lenny was certainly more fun than... Um, but it, one of the first things he said was, we're not going out on location in the caves in December. We'll do it, in the, we'll do it at um, Ealing. And the problem was, normally you did filming before rehearsals and then you did the studios, but Ealing wasn't available. And I came up with the idea that we should do a week's rehearsal and then go and do the filming in the studios when they were free and I actually thought this would be better because the cast would have got into it a bit which is in fact is what happened and it also meant that the the cave scenery which we needed in the studio anyway was just built for the filming and then moved into the studio oh, so, so you used the same scenery we used the same scenery Doctor Who you couldn't have afforded yeah. to but there was because we hadn't gone on to location just a bit more money for the scenery so it helped the designer from that point of view uh, and they were very complicated sets, because I think there were... I know there were sort of sets within sets and sets that had corridors uh, behind yes, them. Yes, and, and Frank Gatliff has a... And a, crossfed a, monitors. A, worsh, a worshipping room. That's and it. chucks yes. John Pertwee and That's Liz Sladen yes. down into a pit. Because mm. we were in the studio and it was crammed with scenery. And there was a set missing. It was some sort of caves that the humbugs were supposed to be creeping through. And I remember studio management used to come down to the studio to inspect how things were going. And the head of studio management came over to me and said, one query I have, he said, if this set had, you know, comes, exactly where do you think you're going to put it? And I pointed to the wrong remaining space where all the technical equipment was standing and I said, it goes there. (laughs) (laughs) And so eventually it did arrive and and was put in there. The other thing I remember, it must have been Nina, I think. Nina Thomas? Nina Thomas, yeah who said she'd carefully learned the route to her set across this complicated studio, and now she'd come in and she couldn't get there because an enormous black drape had descended and she couldn't find her way round it. And she said, please tell me how to get to my set. I'm terribly sorry, you know, to be a bother. And I said, look, if in doubt, what you have to do is walk round the edge of the studio and eventually you should find your way into the set. 
because there was sort of there'd be a set and then a corridor behind it, mm-hmm. and these Cybermen sort of creeping about. It was a nightmare to queue because there were also cross-fed monitors, so there'd be a scene going on somewhere, and then Doctor Who watching it on the monitor. That's right. And they were yeah. played in real time, so you had to queue both lots of action at the same time. Because yeah, you can superimpose it onto it. So it was a live feed. It was a so live feed. You're essentially directing yes. two scenes at the same yes. time. And in the last, the last two studios, I remember coming into the... Because it was recorded two episodes at a time. Yeah. And I came into the, the studio for the last time, and there were no monitors in, in the set. They'd all gone. And I said, where are the monitors? And they were doing a rehearsal for the general election. They were all in another studio. And I said, they've got to come back. They're continuity. Um, and event, there was a big technical fight, but eventually we got them back, and they were... <clears throat> put back into the sets because even if they weren't on you know they, they, they were visually established and because the rehearsal for the general election was seriously boring we got loads of VIP visitors I've never, never chucked so many people out of a studio in anything I've ever done it was bad enough being Doctor Who but being Doctor Who was a general election rehearsal going on next door Percy Thrower appeared with an entourage and um, some other guy who I who I chucked out who years later I met at a party and he said oh you threw me out of your studio on a Doctor Who he turned out to be the head of engineering and I said oh dear I hope I did it politely and he said oh yes you were very polite and he said you were quite right (laughs) (laughs) oh good thank you I I Um, guess the lure of uh, alien monsters is is better than the lure of political monsters (laughs) indeed what Percy Thrower was doing was doing there I never found out and I really didn't care but it was just you couldn't move in the studio anyway without you know, strangers. And television studios are quite dangerous spaces too. There are live cables everywhere, um, an awful lot of scenery, monsters wandering around who can't necessarily see where they're going. Um, it was quite tricky. There was an actor in that. Um, his who who played? You mentioned his name. Alan Bennion or no 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 who played uh, the chap with the with the prayer hall? Oh, Frank Gatliff. Frank Gatliff was it? Frank Gatliff? Yes, because I'm yes I remember asking him why he was in the Doctor. He was quite a you know distinguished actor, and he said all his life he'd wanted to play something where he could wear glittery green eye shadow and exterminate <laughs> people. You know he was having a wonderful time. He was enjoying himself. Oh good, that's yeah. nice. So, he's, he's very good in it. He's a fine actor. Yes. Well, he was, he was having fun. I remember Peter Hall saying to me that it was only when... He, being a, a really first-rate lighting cameraman meant nothing to his children. It was only when he worked on Doctor Who that he'd had any street cred whatsoever. <laughs> well, and, and that, that, this was... Both of these stories, Time Warrior and Monster mm. of Peladon, were in John Pertwee's final season, yes. which was overseen by Barry Letts, That's who was right. also on his way mm. out. So it was quite a sort of established family mm. of, of people there. Mm. And, and Barry's time as a producer was seen as one of the most successful of Doctor Who. So do, mm. do you remember Bar- Barry as a producer? I do remember Barry as a producer. He was an excellent producer because he was quite strong, for example, about not allowing things that weren't suitable for Doctor Who. The, there was a mixture, there was some kind of explosion in Doctor Who, and he said, if ever there's an explosion... It's whatever goes into it, it's got to have a magic ingredient so that children won't think they can do it at home. Um, and there were all sorts of things that he was very watchful, and any method of killing had to be something that wasn't, that was, again, had a sort of magic quality so that people trembled and vanished rather than, say, dripping blood and lying about as corpses. Um, and he was quite watchful about all that, but he was a very helpful, supportive producer. 
um, I, you know, was very pleased, you know, that he was in charge of the Doctor Who that I was doing. And, and in terms of directors, because you, mm. you worked on the three Doctor Whos, but you would have worked with a number of mm. sort of BBC directors mm. at that time. Um, Being so a new production manager, I got a lot of the more difficult ones. <laughs> <laughs> I remember reeling off a list once to somebody who said, my God, who did you offend? And it wasn't necessary that I'd offended anybody. It was just that new production managers who were new, weren't going to complain about being given the difficult directors. Once they'd got a bit more established, um, then they might have complained. And what did a difficult director do? Was that the method of working, or, or was, was it that they were good but hard, or was it that they weren't very good at their jobs? It, could, it, it varied. I mean, I did some work for Vic Ritellis, oh. who was notoriously nasty, and I'd just become permanent at this point, and I thought, I'm not going to give him an edge. So I sat there in the office, you know, being as neutral as I could manage. And he told me afterwards, for the first three weeks, he got nothing out of me but hmm. And he started to be able to distinguish between the different hmms. And he said what worried him even more was that I didn't appear to write anything down. Uh, and he was really rather grateful. We got into the studio and it was all happening. Um, but in, in the end, I got on very well with Vic. Vic was demanding. Um, and I think probably if you did give way, maybe he was a bully. But in fact, because um, I remember him... This has nothing to do with Doctor Who. That's all right. Vic's worked on Doctor Who. Yeah. He's done one of these, actually. I Skyped ah. him in Australia. Oh, right. Because yeah. I remember him... Uh, there was a long recording break in Birmingham. This was a spy, spy trap, I think. And I had cracked some joke with the actors, and they, they all laughed. And he was, he was snarling down line at me. And in once we went into editing, I was still going to everybody's editing. I said to him, "Look, I did this to break the tension, you know, because I could see the actors. You know, it was a long wait; they were just getting wound up, and you could actually see this on on the tape. And the next time we did a studio, the same sort of thing happened. There was a long wait while they ran up the tape. And it was two people with a scene, and I said, "What's on the back of that matchbox?" And one of the actors read out this rather feeble joke, and they laughed. And, and I heard this little voice in my ear going, oh, that was nicely done. Because he'd, he'd got onto my wavelength then. And he actually told me that it was like having a second brain in the studio, which was one of the nicest compliments anybody ever paid me. He tried to get me over to series to do colditz with him, but I wasn't allowed to go. There was some, you know... Oh, shame. It's a good pro- show. Well, probably just... Uh, was it colditz or was it, it was a secret army? Probably just the fact that he asked for me made them determined not to let me go. You know, it, was, it, it could get like that. Um, but there was him, there was Joan Craft, who was really tough. She generally worked with Jane Shirley, and if she wasn't working with Jane, you know, um, she could be really tough. And she, she was another one who could suddenly turn and snarl, because I remember coming up with an idea for a cut. That was ONND. I did a lot of work in Birmingham for some reason. And I suggested this cut, and she snarled at me, and I sort of shrank back into my shell, and there was about two minutes' silence while she riffled through the script. Because, again, it was still cut editing. So if you went back, you lost a generation. So we've got to find a cut between then and the end of the show, if possible. And she suddenly sat up and said, it's a very good idea, we'll do it. And did it. Um, But at least, you know, she would snarl, and then that would be it. Um, whereas someone like Mary Ridge would bear a grudge for weeks, oh. um, which I, you know, really couldn't be doing with. 
She did one um, Doctor Who, which, which didn't end happily, I think, but that was towards yeah. the end of her career, I think. And um, what's her name, who did EastEnders? Julia Smith. Julia Smith, I will with her. She was another bully. And I remember all the way through the rehearsals of the thing I did with her, oh, what was, I think it was Zed Cars, it was Zed Cars. She was bullying the AFM, and I was trying, you know, to spare him. He wasn't a terribly good AFM. And then when we got into the studio, she started in on me, and there was a scene, long seven-minute scene with all the cameras and most of the cast, and she was snarling and shrieking, and I thought, I think if I had headphones, I'd take them off and throw them down and walk out. You can't make a dramatic gesture with an earpiece. <laughs> and we got, we sort of stopped for tea, and I went into, um, I think it was Red Assembly, and all the camera crew gathered round me, and I said, oh, God, that was awful. And one of them said, no, 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 you were wonderful. You know, you, you stood up to it, we've got through the scene, don't worry about it. It was so sweet. Um, and the second morning, uh, because we used to start about 9 o'clock, 9.15 in the studio, and then record up to sort of supper time, and then the actors would go out and do night shoots. It was a horrendous schedule um, with another team. And we did the first scene, which was with John Slater and someone, and Jimmy Ellis wasn't there for the next scene. And I went, ugh, because it was, you know, there it was, it was, you know, this horrendously bullying director. And John said, what's the matter? And I said, Jimmy's not here. And he said, oh, God, I told him he couldn't possibly get to the scene that fast. And I went, and he said, don't worry, don't worry. And he went over and started asking questions. You know, he said, um, when we do this, and the other actor caught on, and then the cameraman caught on, and they were all asking these questions, and eventually... Um, lost her name again. Julia Smith. Julia. That's it. I keep getting confused between Julia and Joan. It's because of the heat. Julia said, well, do you want to run the scene again? At that point, I saw the, the floor assistant dragging Jimmy, still in his hat and coat, across the studio floor like a sledge. You know, he was sliding on his feet. And I, and I waved, no, no. And John said, no, no, we're perfectly happy now. We moved on. It was the finest bit of acting he did all day, I think. <laughs> and the designer went into labour during the first day in the studio because I thought, God, my, my training didn't tell me actually what to do if the designer goes into labour. Luckily, she went off to hospital, and we got a, a note saying you know, maybe she'd had the baby. And one of the extras had a heart attack in the middle of the evening recording. I think it was on the second day. It was a hell of a show, that one. Crikey. And uh, that was memorable. Well, what about, what about some of the best directors, then, to, to, to work for? Best for? directors. In, oh, gosh... Um, well, I adored working with David Giles. I worked with him as an AFM. I never worked with him as a production manager, but I did set up both the Mayor of Casterbridge and Barchester, knowing he was going to be the director when I was a production associate. I loved working with David. Very, very good actor's director. Um, not the most technically, you know, though pretty good, even technically, but he, he hated doing things like battles. It wasn't really his thing. Probably the most accomplished director I ever worked with was James McTaggart, when I, back in my days in plays. Because he was the most complete director. He was technically always... He was absolutely brilliant, and he was pushing the technology to the edge, but he also knew when to stand back. He did a series of, of um, things, short stories by James Mackie Brown, where he did... He only ever cut where he absolutely had to, so he was totally unaware of the camera. But he did. He also did Candide, where he was pushing the technology of CSO and 
tricks like that which were just coming in absolutely to the edge of what they could do but he was such a good actor's director I did a thing called um, Toddler on the Run Sheena Mackay script and he actually stopped rehearsals for two days during the course of rehearsals because he wanted the actors still to be on an upward trajectory when they got to the studio and not to have, as it were, peaked too soon. And I thought that is the mark of a really, really clever director. Um, that he knew exactly where they were all going and where he wanted them to be when so they got to the studio. Pause. He needed to pause or they'd right. have gone too far. Wow. Um, I've never known another director do that. No. Um, no, because you, your instinct is to fill the time. Exactly, with as much and work I've worked with directors who have filled the time and done run after run and killed the show. So he he was very. Alan Bridges, who I mentioned to you, was another very very clever director. Um, though I think better with men than with women. David Giles was probably at his absolute best um, with actresses or female actors, as we now call them. Who else? Um, oh, Maura, Maura Armstrong yeah. was possibly the best director I ever met for being able to put period on the screen and make it absolutely believable and real. Um, she did The Girls of Slender Means, which was three episodes, two of which were mostly atmosphere and setting it all up and so on, and it was riveting. She got it absolutely, absolutely right. Very good, very, she was a very good gallery director. Um, and you did um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which has you know gone on to be, I think, held up as a mm. as a paragon of, of uh, in terms of script production and acting. Mm. It was a, it was a, it, the shooting was a total nightmare. I could give you another hour on that probably. <laughs> nightmare because it was a hard job, or because it could have been done well better. Jonathan, it was sort of. Mayor of Casterbridge was set up before Jonathan ever joined it. That, you know, he just came along for the ride. So Tinker Taylor was, you know, absolutely his baby. This is John, Jonathan Powell. Jonathan Powell. Yeah. He was convinced that we could shoot seven episodes in 14 weeks, in two blocks of seven weeks, with a week in the middle. And he said to me, I didn't know his director, he said that his director is really fast. And I looked... I don't know whether I had the scripts or whether it was just from the book, but I was—I never believed we could do it in 14 weeks. It was full of night shooting, which takes long to light. It, it was going to involve stunts. It was going to involve foreign filming. There was no way. So I wrote a great piece of fiction in the, um, the, the financial office for this. I had to say, because Jonathan wouldn't budge, that we were going to do it in 14 weeks, but I wrote in the money for 16 weeks which I still didn't think was enough, and it wasn't. <clears throat> and then, we started, when we started shooting, um, we were hit by various disputes, and also partly because we were trying to do too much, and there was so much night shooting, everybody got very tired. I've never known a show with so many technical problems. We lost several night shoots through various technical problems, and a day shoot in Oxford, the one with Beryl Reed and... Um, Alec, we did a whole interior shoot and one of the stops on the camera wasn't right so all the close-ups were wrong and we couldn't just go back and do the close-ups because in the meantime there was a dispute with the pop hire firm oh. so it all had to be redressed and we had to reshoot the whole thing we did a night, they were always the most expensive places we did a night shoot at the Savoy 
we were the opposite of day for night. We were shooting night for day because they would only let us film interiors at midnight on Sunday, which is, you know, double trouble bubble time for the sparks and everybody. And that had edge fogging all the way down it, so we had to go back and do that again. There were various other problems, plus the dispute. So we ended up overshooting by absolutely miles on that and rescheduling. And of course, once we got to the end of the official schedule, we lost half the actors were then in stage shows. So we could only use them when they weren't performing. Which, and some locations we could only use on Sunday, like the Inns of Court or um, Shaftesbury Circus. So scheduling was a total nightmare. Um, so that was very true. When we were doing Smiley's People, I remember thinking, we're not, I'm not going to get caught like this again if I can help it. And Jonathan rushed in one day and said, quick, quick, um, Alex Agent wants a schedule for Smiley's People. And I handed him this piece of paper, which I'd broken it down into four and five week blocks with two week gaps in between, because there was a lot more foreign filming. And I also knew that Alec liked to rehearse. It, it fell, again, this is very technical, I could go on for a long time about why, but it fell into nice blocks like that in terms of the use of actors and so on. And I handed him this piece of paper and he rushed up and told the agent, I don't think he, I don't know if he even read it, and he came back and said, oh, the agent's quite happy with this, and I thought, well, so he should be, because I've done it for Alec, and it's a sensible schedule. And that one, we finished, you know, bang on time on the day. Well, except for the fact that we lost our first director and all had to move. Um, Guinness is extraordinary, though, isn't yes, it? Yes, uh... yes. But he, he never wanted to do more than three takes. And he, used, he wanted to be absolutely um, dead letter perfect, DLP. So he would, you know, he would learn, you know, the week's work very carefully. He didn't like us to change the schedule. Because I remember one moment towards the end of Tinker Taylor, we had to do a rejig for some reason. And we were sort of, you know, tossing coins to see who was going to ring Alec and break it to him. But because we'd never done it before and he knew we'd made such an effort, he was very good about it and accepted the reschedule and learned the new, the, the new bit. Um, but in a way, he was quite right, you know, because, you know, after the third take, it starts to lose life. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, so he'd, do, he'd rehearse as long, you know, he'd rehearse it, but he didn't want to do more than three takes. Um, but he had difficulties with uh, Beryl Reed because Beryl comes from left field and she doesn't do the same thing every time. She does something different every time. And he found her very difficult to deal with because he would have to keep adjusting <laughs> to what she came up with. But those scenes between them are absolutely wonderful. I thought she was much better casting than, although I like the actress who played it in the film, Cathy Burke, she, Beryl was actually much better casting. Oh, yes, the scene in The Gentleman's Club where Nig- Alec has gone along there in order to get Nigel, the Nigel Stock character to talk, and he does. He talks solidly through the whole of lunch, and, and Smiley just sits there, nodding and responding and just giving him a little nudge. And the film editor said to me, that the shooting on Alec was so riveting, he could have done the entire scene with Nigel Stock as a voiceover. There was never a moment where Alec wasn't doing something, giving him something, being fascinating. And good though Nigel was, he had to, you know, wrench himself off Alec in order to do shots of Nigel. 
So a good actor who can make something out of absolutely nothing. Well, what happens even with very good actors, there comes a moment where it goes. You know, the eyes go, or they, they, they're not doing something. You can often see it when you're editing. You know, this is the moment you've got to get out before they, they hit that. But he said, you know, the, the whole time with Alec, it, you, it, was, it was always there. And what, as what he was doing was so minimal, that's quite something. Mm. Yeah. There's a, a similar sort of story in Mayor of Casterbridge with um, Alan Bates, who was such an accomplished film actor. We were shooting on with OB cameras, and David Giles, they were in a little office, he was playing a scene with um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Jane? Yeah, that's it, yes. She was sitting at a desk, and he was wandering around, and David just said to Alan, look, walk wherever you like, because I'm going to do cut-ins anyway, just play the scene, and we'll play it straight, straight through on camera. And the cameraman said to me, it was amazing, Alan would wander around, and he would then walk towards the camera, and at minimal focal distance, he would turn on his heel and give the cameraman a perfectly composed over-the-shoulder two-shot, all nice. the time playing the scene. The cameraman said he'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. And I thought, that is the mark of a really, really good actor. Yeah. And that was shot all out of order, seven episodes, the character ages 20 years and, and suffers enormous vicissitudes. Now, David had had three weeks rehearsal beforehand, with the, the main actors, but you notice, you know, that you, that the arc of the performance is perfectly composed throughout this whole shoot, you know, which is very many weeks, and that again is a sort of technical skill that no no viewer will ever realise is there. Yeah. Um, so. And well, look, I've I've, 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 I've promised I'd. And I still to haven't briefly. told you the Bill Slater story, but I'm not sure how much that would mean to anybody outside the business anyway. No, it's, it's to, let's do it. Let's do it. If you've got the time, I'm okay. more concerned by no, your time than anything I'm not, else. I'm not planned to do it. I don't plan to do anything much in this heat. Um, while we were doing the six-parter with Lenny Main, <clears throat> you're right. Things were changing. <clears throat> Barry was coming to the end. You know, Bill Slater had come in and taken over as head of the department. He had been head of series. And in series, they were very tight on recording time and rules. And they weren't allowed to have more than five recording breaks planned in a recording session from 7.30 to 10. You could have pauses. And they were limited as well, and sometimes the pauses turned into breaks, and that was sort of okay. But they were very strict about this. And he came into series and serials and got the report of the first two episodes of the Lenny Main one. Um, and he called Barry Letts into his office. What is this? 26 planned recording breaks, 32 actual recording breaks, you know, 15 planned pauses, actually, whatever they were, probably 30 or so. And he said, what the hell is all, is all this? And Barry just said calmly, come along to our next studio recording and you will see. So he came to the next studio recording and sat in the back of the box watching and, of course, what we were doing was um, the killing of... The Ice Warriors. The Ice Warriors, that was it. And the setup was you stopped the camera and then you put in uh, a mirror, two mirrors, and you did a shot in which you ping the mirror so the Ice Warrior trembled. And then you stopped again and you took the mirrors out, I think... And then you ran it again. So what you got when you when it all went to get went together was the ice warrior trembling and then vanishing, on all done on rollback and mix. 
because there was limited editing time as well. But doing this, of course, involved a number of stops and starts. And if it didn't work, then you had to do the whole thing again. With some more stops and starts. And I think there was one scene in which about five of them met their end. So you can imagine the breaks in that. Um, yeah, because you've got two different sorts of deaths. There's the Ice Warrior yes, gun, which yeah. makes the, just the twisty yes. mirror thing. And then you'd got the CSO of the big monster statue mm, that yes. breathed smoke. That's right. And, that's the, and then that's the bright light yeah. and the person disappears. Yeah. We got to the end of the last recording, in episode six, this has just come back to me, and we got 15 minutes more studio time and we got about 20 minutes tape. So they just ran the tape and Lenny came down on the floor and I would set something up, and it was a lot of this was this CSO and monsters of people staring up, and going, ah! you know, and then the monsters flame and smoke and stuff, which we'd left to the end, of course, because clearing smoke out of the studio was another problem. And I would set something up, and Lenny would cue it while I was setting up the next thing, and we we just got we just did it by the end of end of the time with the tape just running running the whole time through this last fifteen or twenty minutes, and I went to the editing of that. And the same, they used to try and get the same VT guy who'd done the recording to do the editing. And he said he was glad to see me at a slightly slower pace than a blur. (laughs) (laughs) He said he'd see me periodically, you know, from the camera output hurtling across the set, um, but never standing still. uh, But we never heard any more from Bill Slater as a department about the limited recording breaks. He said he'd never seen anything like it. Of course, he wouldn't have done in series. No. They didn't tend to do that sort of thing. No, so with Doc 2, you've got a show that's actually got bigger technical requirements mm, yes, than shows yes. that are higher budgeted at this Oh, absolutely. I, I was amazed, to be honest, as a very new production manager, and I, th- I thought afterwards, you know, they must put you on this, and the theory that if you can cope with this, you can cope with anything. Because it, because it didn't have any money, it was always, you know, pushing the technology. I remember seeing a set once, you know, we used to go around looking at the sets every day, and it looked awful in the studio it was Doctor Who and they'd run out of money and it was black drapes and in front of it were piled coloured milk crates with angled camera cards sort of across the opening bits and it was an intergalactic library and on camera it looked wonderful Mm -hmm. Um, you thought that was and and people used to give Doctor Who you know spare bits of sets off other shows and things because it had so little money bless it (laughs) (laughs) So what about you? How did you come to be working at the BBC? What was your background? And, and, and did you always wanted to go into production? Um, I started off... My mother helped found a repertory theatre. And we used to... You know, actors who didn't have anywhere else to go used to be invited to our house for Christmas. And we lent props to the theatre. She ran the front of house on Tuesdays. She was a costume designer. And she used to make costumes, costumes for shows. And I remember taking something that I'd borrowed for a school show back to the theatre one autumn. I think I was 12. And they were going to be doing Cinderella. And I heard the stage manager saying, well, I don't know what we're going to do for staff. And I wandered on and said, well, there's always me. Oh, he said, I've got you down for props. And I thought, oh, ah, oh, well. So I went back and said to my parents, would it be all right if I worked at the theatre over, over Christmas and the pantomime? And they said, yes, that was fine. So I carried on working that was a, a Cinderella with Susanna York. Um, and she was straight out of RADA. 
and she got an audition for her first film role in Tunes of Glory while she was there. And I could hear her agent screaming down the phone, Susie, you've got to wear a dress. You know, she was jeans and jumper. And she came off the phone. She said, what am I going to do? She said, I haven't got a dress. She said, I've got some material, but I haven't got a dress. And I said, oh, my mother will make you a dress. <laughs> what am I letting her in for? Rang my mother and said, could you make Susie a dress, you know, over the weekend? And she said, yes. And so they came up for Sunday lunch. And my mother literally made this dress on Susie. And she went off on the Monday to this audition and uh, got the part. So... <laughs> And so, you know, I sort of grew up in the theatre. Um, and I'm one of the stage managers, at, this was at Derby, had trained at the Bristol Vic Theatre School. And he told me, because I didn't even know there were such things as, as training courses for stage management. And he said, oh, yes, there are two. There's one at Bristol and there's one at RADA. And the Bristol one is the best, because the RADA one, they just tend mainly to use them for the shows. And they don't, they don't they're not taught terribly well. So I applied to go to Bristol, and uh, they wrote back and said I was a bit young, and my father wrote back, defending. and I also had a reference from the theatre who had offered me an apprenticeship, which I'd turned down, because I was, you know, I'd always thought I'd go to university, because <clears throat> I was academically good. The school were absolutely apoplectic when I went to Bristol rather than going to university, because <laughs> apparently they thought they, I'd get a state scholarship. They wrote in my school report, it is a pity she has set her sights on such utilitarian objectives. And I thought, I've never heard a career in the theatre described before or since. That's a utilitarian <laughs> objective. But I got into Bristol, and it was wonderful, because it was the first time in my life I'd been with people roughly my, my own age who were interested in the same things. I was a freak at school, um, and I had a much better time there. Well, look, what is, your, what is your charity of choice? My charity of, sh of choice is, I think it's called the Alzheimer's Society. They're doing research into, um, into dementia. I think I'd like any, any money to go to them. Well, please give listeners, because you haven't paid for this. Uh, and it's Doctor Who's 50 years old this year, which was mm. a leap-off point for this. Um, and so what's your message to the Doctor Who fans out there listening to uh, the fruits of our interview? Goodness. Or can you explain why, or, or what do you think is the reason um, of all the stuff that you've done, that it, it, and, and anybody, it seems to me, that has an association with Doctor Who, that we keep coming back to Doctor Who? Uh, oh, well, it, it's a wonderful self-generating setup, apart from anything else. Very few shows with a name in the, in the title role can keep going. Certainly not for 50 years. Uh, Bergerac? Mm -hmm. How can you do Bergerac without Bergerac? Um, it's a classic one, but this, the, the self-regeneration and the fact you can regenerate the character, I think has also given people freedom to regenerate everything around it, and I think that's probably what's kept it alive so long. Well, brilliant, it's been fascinating, and um, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Marcia Wheeler, thank you very much. Thanks to Marcia. There's about another 50 minutes of that and it's all amazing stuff. So uh, maybe I'll find an outlet for that at some point. But for now, please give to Marcia's charity, www. 
alzheimers.org.uk. That's www.alzheimers, alzheimers.org.uk. Uh, I'm being brief with these ones because I've got loads to do. So tune into the next one because it's somebody interesting talking about Doctor Who and stuff. In the meantime, buy this thing you're about to hear bits of now. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, Equilibrium. Ice? More ice and... Oh, what's over there? Mountains made of ice. It's another day of darkness. The black snows fall again. So what is your gauge of equilibrium telling you? The energies, they are shifting. We've no idea what animals they might be keeping here. It wasn't an animal. It sounded human. You are all welcome to Eisenfeld. For now. We shall catch ourselves something extra today. We should go back to your palace. Yes. Go back and tell my mother what we have seen. And the doctor. I don't know about you, but I've had quite enough of the end of the world. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.